Welcome to the Avenue Community Church's podcast. We are a family of Christ followers seeking shalom in Memphis. We pray that you are encouraged by today's message. And as you listen, may the word of God shape you to be more like him. Amen. Uh, if you've been with us at the Avenue, we, we kind of, we started a series after 1 Corinthians um, where we just wanted to look at these seven kind of I am statements. It's one thing to kind of, you know, uh, 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 try to figure out who Jesus is. And it's probably an easier thing to just believe what he says about himself. So um, one of the things that he does, or at least as the, uh, the gospel evangelist John uh, records it, is that he essentially, he, he kind of encaptures in, in these moments in these seven statements, um, ca- uh, usually tucked in the middle of either parables or different stories or different accounts, where Jesus just kind of comes flat out and he says, I am the bread of life. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. Um, Let me leave it. Let me not leave it to you to try to figure out and to discern who I am. Let me tell you who I am. And let me just make your response very simple. You don't have to figure out what I am. All you have to do is believe it. Which, if we could be quite honest, y'all, believing in Jesus is the most difficult thing any human being could ever undertake. And if it's anything that these I am statements have made abundantly clear, is that there is a gap. There, there's, there is factual information we know about him, right? And then how do we close that gap? It's belief. But believing is so hard, y'all. And I think one of the coolest things we get to see this morning is really kind of just how hard believing is um, through this story of Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. Now, I, I prayed this prayer, and I just want to say it clearly. Um, you know, I think we wake up, and, you know, from the first time, um, if you were raised in a Christian household, or even if you weren't raised in a Christian household, you see Easter bunnies, and eventually you're like, well, why do they call it Easter? Well, even if you're not a Christian, you're probably like, well, they get it from the Christian folks, and the Christian folks believe that Jesus rose. And if you don't know anything else about Sunday morning, sometime in March or sometime in April, at least you know whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, they think Jesus rose. What I want to do this morning is really ask the Holy Spirit to help us understand what that means. I know you know the statement. Paul prays, I believe it's the third chapter of Ephesians. He says, God, I pray that they would understand what they know. That they would grasp how wide and how deep your love is for them. So I want you to pray a prayer really right now in your spirit. It's like, Lord, I want to understand it with depth today. And I think this story gives us just a little bit of an opportunity to understand it um, with a little bit more depth. What does this resurrection business actually mean? So let's just set the stage like this. Um, We kind of had a malfunction with the words, but we have plenty of these. Um, with all of our scripture on it, so you can kind of be following along. I won't read the scripture because it's 44 verses unless y'all want me to, and I can, you know, 
I love to read. You know, can I just tell y'all, my mother-in-law's not here. She got my kids, but my mother-in-law loves to read. She, hey, I don't care if you graduated college. I don't care whether you got a doctorate. She will read Dr. Seuss to you. Sit down, let me read something to you. It's like, oh, I can read it for myself. No, 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 let me read it to you. I love my mother-in-law. She's the best. All right, so let's, let me just zoom through um, and kind of give you the narrative. And I think what's going to happen, what I'd like to draw out as I'm kind of walking through this time of the story, is really I think we're going to get an opportunity to see how God works, right? We're going to get a chance to kind of unpack the plan of God and how resurrection really fits inside of it. You want to you you really understand where I'm going today? That's where I want to go. This is one of the big ideas. You're going to get to see today, I think, uh, really a, a glimpse into the plan of God and how resurrection fits inside of it, all right? So it starts out, we know John 11, we meet this cat named Lazarus, all right? Um, only thing we know is he's from this town called Bethany. It's two miles kind of outside, maybe to the east of Jerusalem. Now, we know this about Lazarus from the first four verses, that Lazarus um, has two sisters, Mary and Martha, right? We have uh, seen Mary before in earlier accounts in John. She was the one who washed Jesus' feet with tears and poured the perfume on. That's that Mary. She is related to our Lazarus who lives outside of Jerusalem in a town called Bethany, all right? Um, what we know from verses 5 and verses 11 that these aren't Jesus' acquaintances. These are actually Jesus' friends, right? When Jesus want to have game night, he going to probably call Mary and Martha. Y'all want to come through? Come on through. We're going to get, you know, we're going to do a little urum thurum. I don't know what they do, but these are his people. <laughs> these are Jesus' people. And in and, and, and all actuality, when we actually find out for the first time that Lazarus is sick, Mary and Martha send word to Jesus, and you could even look at the greeting. You could even look at the message to see that this was more than a mere acquaintance because when they actually told Jesus, sent word to him that Lazarus was sick, they said, Lord he, Lord, he whom you love is ill. These are Jesus' friends, all right? Now, let me just get it out the way. Friendship is not what this message is about. I know that you, 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 there, there's a temptation because you see uh, so much uh, uh, platonic language in there and you see so much relational language in the middle of this passage. Um, even that infamous uh, John 35, the short, 11.35, shortest verse in the Bible. I think that, that there is a temptation to try to connect that and think that this is really about Jesus and his friends, all right? This is not primarily what this is about, though I want to establish clearly that Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were actually Jesus' good friends, right? Verse 4 says that when Jesus got the message that Lazarus was sick, he says something really kind of strange. He says, says, when he heard this, Jesus says, the sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. I'll read it one more time. Jesus has a really interesting response to, hey, your homeboy's sick. And I imagine if they're sending word to Jesus two miles away in Jerusalem, my man ain't got a runny nose. 
He ain't got a look. <coughs> he ain't got a cough. The man is sick. They send word. Jesus' response is, hey, this sickness will not end in death. As a matter of fact, this sickness has only happened for God's glory so that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. Now, one thing, I think I got four things. Y'all check me on it. But I want to give you the first thing. One of the reasons God does what he does, one of the key components to God's plan is his glory. One of the key components to why God's plan unfolds as it does is for his glory. All right? So he says, hey, this illness will not result in death. Now let's, but it's for the glory of God. Or another translation would have said it like this, in order that God may be glorified. Now, let's just do quickly a little, little word sketch and word study on glorify and glorification and all that jazz, right? Um, usually or oftentimes to give one glory is to praise it, to honor it, to venerate it, right? But there's also another aspect to God getting glory, God's glory can also refer to revelation or self-disclosure, right? Um, that, that, you know, um, uh, sometimes when you take off a layer, you disclose something. And when you cover something up, it's to kind of drape or cover up someone's glory, their virtue, right? So sometimes when we talk about glorifying God, oftentimes in our church we say, give God glory, right? What do we mean? Praise him in accordance with how great he is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, we'll just pause. Can I just do some, pre- can I do some discipling just for a second? Just for a hot second, right? Now, when we give God glory, Cody, you know we was in Bible study now. We talked about praising. Praising is not some kind of intellectual exercise. Praising is not also not meditation. When the Bible says praise him, we got several examples for lifting the voice, enthusiasm, gladness, clapping, get the harp, get the cymbals. When it says praise him, it means give him glory, be excited about him to the level of how great he is. Give him glory in this place, Avenue Community Church. When the Bible, let me just help you. When the Bible wants you to meditate on him, it'll say meditate on him. Oh, but when it says praise him, it means praise him. Don't be disobedient. Don't be disobedient. Oh, that's just the black Baptist cultural stuff coming up. Don't be disobedient. Praise the Lord. No, I'm just meditating. Stop being disobedient. He's risen. Praise him. Woo. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. When it's time to meditate, we'll tell you. <laughs> two different words, two different commands. But this is not talking about praise and adulation. This, Jesus saying, is the sickness is leading to my self-disclosure. So there are times, every time, when I get up to preach, when I gets up to lead us in worship, 
And we close a prayer and we say, Lord, we pray that you would be glorified. What we are praying is that, God, you would be clearly seen. That, that your personhood would be evident. It would be cogent and coherent. They could understand it and we could appraise it rightly. We just want to see you clearly. And what Jesus is saying is that somehow, some kind of way, in this man's sickness, Jesus will be seen. He says this is a quarter for the glory. Let's talk about sickness. If you've read through John, then you would kind of see some similarities between Jesus' response. In John 9, it was the blind man, which to be honest with you, that one miracle has kind of sat in the background of everybody's mind for the past four or five chapters, and it will continue to do so. They saw Jesus heal that blind man, and it's still in the back of their mind. We'll get to that a little bit later. But when they asked, why was that man born blind? What did Jesus respond? This wasn't their mama fault. This ain't have nothing to do with wayward children. This didn't have nothing to do with their parenting techniques. This didn't have nothing to do with what part of town they came from. This only happened. Come on, man. I'm, I'm setting you free right now, somebody. Why am I experiencing so many hiccups in my world? Why am I experiencing so much turbulence? Was it because I didn't take the right path? Did I marry the wrong person? Was I not fiscally responsible? Hey, I want to give you a new category. Sometimes it's just for the glory of God. That his person may be clearly seen through that trial. See, we don't understand the ultimate human predicament. It frustrates us. Turbulence frustrates us. You know what I'm saying? We, we go to college and we paid a lot of money and we waiting on Joe Biden to wipe out all the debt. Come on. <laughs> Y'all don't hold your breath. <laughs> and don't you come to the church trying to help get you to help you pay your student loan bill. You better pay your student loan bill on time. I'm just waiting on Joe. No, don't wait on Joe. No, don't pay, your, pay your loan bill. But we struggle. This is the universal human plight is we struggle. We, we, we think so logically and rationally that if one plus one has to equal two, and why does this happen? And oh, what did we do wrong? Why can't I figure this thing out? Why does God allow non-Edenic problems to continue to exist? It's for the glory of God. Verse 11 said that after this, he went on to tell them, his disciples, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. He says, but I'm going to wake him up. <laughs> his disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. And Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake, I'm glad I was not there. So that you may believe. I'm about to mess you up today. What you mean you were glad you were not there, Jesus? One of the ways that Jesus loves to optimize and maximize his glory 
is he loves to create problems that only he can solve. We see it in Deuteronomy 8. He says, I allowed you to hunger so I can create bread that falls from heaven. Verse 17 says, on his arrival, Jesus finally makes it there. He found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb, everybody say, four days. So he gets there, he pulls up. It's a whole bunch of people who had also made the trek to Bethany. They're there, they're consoling. This is Jewish grieving times, and, and so they're all there with Mary and Martha. In verse 21, Martha finally pipes up, she says, to Jesus, Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Um, we just make sure we frame Martha rightly and Mary rightly. We, we don't have enough evidence or sufficient evidence um, to believe that anything about what she said was an accusation of, against Jesus. Like, you should have been here. We, we cannot say that from this, looking at the scripture. We cannot say that her actions were sinful. Um, they're just true. It was a woman in the middle of grief who was saying things because she was sad and she was also holding on to her faith at the same time. I miss my brother. And actually, I believe if you would have been here, he'd probably still be alive. And that's unfortunate. But I believe even now, even now, you could, God would do whatever you asked him to do. I would encourage you all to just sit with Mary and Martha just for a little bit. Because I do think they can help us understand our heart posture in the middle of these challenging times and circumstances that we live in. What does it look like to be really yourself and to grieve and to just, man, life is hard and I am free to say that life is hard. I am free to say that, man, I'm stressed out this week. I am free to say that I'm a little confused and I don't know what's going on. You are not more saved because you're confused. You're not confused. You are not more saved because you don't want to admit that you don't have stress and anxiety. You are not loved more by God because you don't say like them other folks, I never have worries and I never have doubts. good for you. Life is hard. It's just challenging. And Martha's just, Mary's just confessing that. I miss my brother. But she also knows, gosh, doggone it. It's kind of unfortunate because if you would have been here, maybe he'd still be alive. And Mary would actually go on to say the same thing in verse 32, which is really similar coincidence. But let me just tell you, for those of you all who are trying to figure out the Jesus thing, for those of you all who are thinking you're walking with Jesus or claiming to be walking with Jesus, let me just help you. I think the first step 
of genuine faith is by believing in the capability of the object of your faith, Jesus. There is no faith if you don't actually believe Jesus can do what he says he can do. I love Mary and Martha. We know and we are convinced if you want to heal our brother, he can be made whole. So why wasn't Jesus there, y'all? Why wasn't he there? Because it is true. If Jesus was there, I'm convinced, Mary Martha's convinced, Lazarus been walking, talking, doing backflips. He'd been at the Easter resurrection barbecue. Why didn't he show up? Well, if you've been with us in John, let me give you the second key component to how God moves in his plan. The first one, I told you, for his glory. Secondly, it's in accordance with the Father's will. Jesus moves in accordance with the Father's will, and he is not moving in accordance and merely predicated on our request. So it's not theologically correct if you just ask him, he's just going to do it. Yeah. He's not going to work, usually doesn't work without you praying and asking, but he's not going to work if it's not in line with the divine timeline. We read this, John 6, 38, for I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of the one who sent me. Jesus was obedient. We saw that when he said in John 10, I'm the good shepherd. And the reason why my father loves me is because I do what he tells me. We read that last week, y'all. John 5, 19, Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son does also. Lastly, 1 John 4, 5, 14, that this is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything, it'll be granted to us, right? Is that right? No. This is the confidence we have, 1 John 5, 14, write it down, that if we ask anything according to his will, Jesus will not go rogue on the timeline. Jesus wasn't there at the time of death. As a matter of fact, Verse 6 says that he left actually two days later. Remember when, we, when he finally pulls up on Mary and Martha, Lazarus had been dead four days. Somewhere, write it down, get a tattoo. I'll pay for it. God, listen at me. God has a plan And I know that we have moved away from that old school jargon. We think that that's just, you know, it's the opioid of the masses. We think that's just stuff people try to give themselves to make them feel better about themselves. But if you are going to be a Christian, you have got to believe that's true. Or you will frustrate yourself to no end. 
God has a plan. And I think it's an uncomfortable space for you as a believer when you have to dance between the reality of knowing what God can do and then struggling with what he chooses not to do. I know that's a hard space. But if you forsake one, I don't know if you are abiding in him. If you just run over to God, God can do everything and he better be doing everything, you're going to end up running yourself off into a ditch. And if you just resign yourself to, I have no, he's just going to do what he wants. No, you got to wrestle between what he can do and praying for that and then also struggling and sitting in what he chooses not to do and being okay with that. And that's a tough space. I haven't mastered it. Somebody write the book and give it to me. God does things for his own glory. He does, thing, does, does things in accordance with God's will and the Father's timing. And he also does things that are just beyond our understanding. Isaiah 55 and 8, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. Listen, th- you got to understand this about Christianity. That listen to me, y'all, the Trinity is up to things that we could spend 10 lifetimes trying to get our minds around, but it wouldn't work. I just, I cannot read the Gospels, y'all. You have to, you have to read the Gospels. I have made a personal commitment. I was like, man, you know what? Man, we always, we love to be, I told our staff, I think we love to be in the epistles. You know why we love to be in epistles? Because it's just kind of so straightforward. Man, here's how we're supposed to live. Boom, 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 boom. Do this, do this, do this. Which is so funny. The people who are so averse to doing stuff love to be, oh, yeah, yeah, man, let's just read this because we can understand that. But Jesus and them four gospels and those miracles and all that kind of stuff, it confuses us. I don't know what to do with all that. What do I do with him turning water to wine? What do I do with the blind man? What do I do with him taking two fish and five loaves and feeding thousands of people? What do I do with it? I don't know. Let's go to Romans. Oh, but I think you need to get yourself back in them gospels. And I think you need to wrestle with all this stuff that you can't wrap your head around. And I think you need to struggle with it. And I think you need to grapple with it. Is it true? Can it be? I'm not sure. And I think you need to stop looking snobbery at the people who are constantly misunderstanding Jesus and understanding that you would have been no better. He would have been sitting on your pew and you wouldn't have had no idea who he was. We sit on the other side of the cannon, and we think that we would have been so different. Jesus would have been sitting, eating tacos and ganas with us, and we'd have been like, oh, man, where you come from, bro? Man, I'm actually from Nazareth. Really? That's cool. Man, you like the taco? Yeah, man, but I could, I'm actually the bread of life. Man, that's really cool. <laughs> Y'all, if in your reading of the scriptures, you don't understand this motif, that people are constantly missing who he is, and you're going to misunderstand your walk. 
I was Jeremy Griffin, preached a message. One of his points was the illusion of proximity, right? That the disciples, they have no clue what's going on. These brothers are, first of all, verse 8, they worried for Jesus' life. They're like, Jesus, you know these folks trying to kill you, man. Jesus is like, no, let's go to Judea. They're like, Jesus, why are we doing that? And then Thomas was like, no, it's all right, bro, let's ride. If it's time to die, let's go get it. It's like, whoa, 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 right? These brothers, and then in the next verse, what is that? Verse 11, they think Lazarus is actually dead. So it's like, then Jesus has to, he says, then I spoke plainly to them. It's like, man, these brothers have no clue what's going on, and they spent three years with Jesus. And you who struggle to do your quiet time, you think you're going to come out better than them? <laughs> Stop being so arrogant. Stop being so arrogant, y'all. You better ask God for grace. God, I need, you to, I need you to be glorified today so I can see you rightly, God. So the disciples don't know what's going on. Mary and Martha, they don't know what's going on. And we know that clearly because we get this interaction between them in verse 23. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, I'm the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who's coming to the world. The disciples had Jesus with them. They didn't know what was going on. Mary and Martha had immaculate theology and were missing it. They said everything theologically accurate and still didn't know what Jesus was saying to them. What is the resurrection, y'all? And what are the implications of believing it? First of all, it's an event. And Mary and Martha understood that, that on the last day, those people who were Jesus's would be raised from death to life, including their brother Lazarus. But Jesus says, I am the resurrection, therefore taking resurrection from merely an event to now a person. The resurrection is not merely an event, but it is a person. And by believing in that person, we will live even though we will die. Let's just pause just for half a second. This in no way is saying that we will all mortally live forever. By Jesus healing Lazarus, it was not him saying that he would heal all of our sicknesses and diseases now. We will all die unless the Lord comes back. Before then, we will die of the last disease we have. It's true. Some of y'all might die of sleepitis. You'll just drift off. But Jesus is not saying this about mortal death and mortality. What he's saying is, 
is that by believing in Jesus, we will never die spiritually. And that there is a present reality that begins at belief that will be confirmed at the resurrection. That people will get a new nature now that will become evident, oh, at the resurrection. But Jesus is also saying, listen at this. He's also saying on a whole nother level, hey, hey Martha, hey Mary, I know you got the right theology. That all that are mine, I'm going to raise them from the dead on the last day. I know. I know you, you believe that and that's good. But I want to do something right now. Come on, man. Come on, man. He's moving you. He's moving you. He's moving you from that little Sunday school classroom and chair and, and your, your stock answers. Jesus, he rose from the dead. And yes, it's Easter morning. Yes, it's resurrection. He's like, yes, I know that, but I want to do something with you now, though. See, the resurrection wants to demonstrate some resurrection power now. Right over Mary and Martha's head. Jesus, D.A. Carson puts it like this, Jesus' concern is to divert Martha's focus from an abstract belief in what can take place on the last day to a personalized belief in him who alone can provide it. And just as he not only gives the bread from heaven, but himself is the bread of life, so also he not only raises the dead on the last day, but is himself the resurrection and the life. There is neither resurrection nor eternal life outside of him. I know your brother's dead, Martha and Mary, but I want to do something for you, Mary and Martha. I know as I was just singing the song, the resurrected king is resurrecting me. I know that you want me to resurrect Lazarus, but what I'm actually here to do is to resurrect you. It's kind of like the same thing with the prodigal son. We put so much time and attention on the son, the prodigal, who goes off and, man, I'm so glad he found Jesus. And then all of a sudden, years, years later, many of us who study that passage realize, oh, my goodness. That he's actually wanting to do something with the son who stayed as well. Thank you, brother. It's time. It's time. <laughs> time for me to cut it off. I got to cut off. When Jesus says in verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked, come and see, Lord. They replied, and Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved them. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Listen, you got to give me just a couple minutes. I'm over. What actual time is it? It is 11. Give me a couple minutes. I'm going to get out your way. Thank you. Jesus orchestrated this whole thing so that Mary and Martha would deepen their faith in him. 
there is any morning some of y'all ask me when I walked in, PT, you ready? Heck yeah, I'm ready. Because if I can do anything to deepen your faith in the Lord Jesus, sign me up. The crowds, I told you the disciples didn't know what was going on. Mary and Martha had all the cute theological answers. They didn't know what was going on. And the crowds, they certainly don't know what's going on. They're looking at it with their natural eyes. I told you that everybody has in their mind that John 9, Jesus healed this blind man. And they, in their mind, were like, well, no, that's, there's some incongruency here, right? Like, he healed that blind man. Wouldn't he resurrect him? And let me get to... The key point, we could exchange emails about this some other time. Let's get to the shortest, maybe most controversial verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. Because if you look at those two words, and if you are looking at John 11 in the context of friendship and grieving, then you're going to see this merely as Jesus pouring out an emotional, uh, fraternal response to comfort his friends. But if you see this in the context of the whole main idea of this passage is that I want to give my people life and that can only happen if they believe in me, then Jesus is overwhelmed by something different. And it's illogical for you to think that Jesus would sit there and be crying because he said that Lazarus is dead if he's getting ready to raise him. He's getting ready to raise him. So I, I don't think you can follow that trail. But Jesus, the word that is actually used when he was deeply moved in his spirit, he was troubled, y'all. Those are not words of consolation. Those are not words of mourning. There was actually, when in extra biblical sources, when they use that word, it's kind of a deep groaning and a, a kind of a, a snarling of like of a horse or something. I couldn't get my snarl right. I got to work on it. <laughs> He's surrounded by these people who are grieving, which once again, grieving is natural. It is natural. When you lose people you love, it is natural. When uh, uh, there are fractures in relationships and you miss people, that is natural. Those things hurt and they wound deeply. But as 1 Thessalonians 4.13 says, as Paul gives them that admonishment, hey, we don't grieve as those people who have no hope. There is a difference between the way that the world processes their problems and issues and where we do. It all begins because we're human. When we experience loss, when we experience pain, we all hurt. And if you are a Christian who represents to the world that you don't hurt, you are giving them a false witness. But if you are a Christian who says, hey, I hurt, oh, but there's an end to my pain. There is something that can calm the raging fires of my soul like a wet blanket. Oh, then you're giving them an appropriate witness that I got a safe word that can calm anything down in my heart. 
that there's a name that when you mention it, it can dry even the most constant of tears. Because I'm not hopeless. The main lesson here is about believing. And Jesus is surrounded by those who, who have unbelief. Their unbelief has moved from grief to despair. And D.A. Carson says this, that grief that de degenerates to despair, that pours out its loss as if there were no resurrection, is an implicit denial of that resurrection. You can't believe that I am the resurrection if you're despairing. It don't mix. Y'all go hold, right? It's right there. Pause one second. Jesus is weeping. Jesus in verse 38 is overwhelmed again and again. Because he, the resurrection, wants to bring you life. And he grieves over the one and only thing that can exclude you from both the resurrection and eternal life. You know the only thing that can exclude you from experiencing those things? Unbelief. Unbelief. So he does things, lastly, to strengthen your faith. He does things for his glory. He does things in accordance with God's will. He does things that are beyond human understanding and comprehension. And he does things to strengthen our faith. He tells uh, the crew in verse 39, he says, take, take away the stone. And they said, but Lord, said Mary and Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor for he's been dead there four days. Uh, one translation, I think is the King James Version, says, he stinketh. <laughs> My kids use that scripture on me often. He stinketh. Can you see it now, y'all? Can you see it all culminating together? This steak is well done, 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 done. Lazarus can't get more dead than this. Decomposition has already started. <laughs> Mary and Martha are like, Lord, please don't do it. Let me just move on. <laughs> Come on, man. If we got to roll that stone open, and, and what if it don't happen? Now you're making me, oh, you make, you're making me wrestle again. I, I wanted to try to just resign myself. I wanted to make peace with my predicament. Hey, I want to tell you today that the resurrection wants to touch some things that you wanted to be done away with. He said, open it back up. And Mary's like, no, God, come on, he stink. I don't save me the shame and embarrassment of this again. He said, open it back up. He said, there ain't a situation on this earth that is too dead for the resurrection to resurrect. Come on, man. Come on, man. What you mean you came here to praise God? He has risen. Don't you tell me you are here praising the resurrection if you don't believe that he can resurrect dead things. 
He said, this thing just an object lesson. There is no sense of me having risen from the grave if you were not going to draw power from it. If you were not going to draw strength from the empty tomb. I want to know today, Avenue, and guess, what is your dead thing? What's your Lazarus? What is it that God may be trying to engage you on? And just saying, can I touch it? Can I speak to it? And maybe I'll choose to do it. Maybe I'll choose to bring that loved one back. And maybe I won't. But you better not stop believing that the resurrection can do all that him and the Father say they can or will do. Verse 40, he said, then Jesus said, do I not tell you that if you believe, highlight it, circle it. If you believe, you will see the glory of God. This is the principle, y'all. This is why God orchestrated a delayed trip. He let a brother lay in the tomb that he knew he could raise for four days because he had to get him to this principle. That it's only belief that will allow you to see the glory of God. And you think God is cruel. You think God is cruel for allowing these things to happen. I taught my last child to ride their bike. It was a little more overwhelming than I thought it would be. It's like, man, I guess I won't do that again. But my last one is stubborn. And I can't just bust her in the chest like I bust the boys. Man, toughen up. Even though I, she'd probably be like, ah. We usually capitulate to her timeline. But I was like, you're going to learn how to ride this bike. So I went out there one day, and I took the training wheels off. I'm not using those no more. I love you. And I want you to enjoy riding this bike. But you can't enjoy it. If you don't learn how to believe in yourself and your balance, you cannot have any confidence there will be a resurrection for you. You can't have any confidence that you can find life in Jesus unless you have faith. And he creates spaces that are so big that you have no other choice but to make up in your mind whether you're going to believe him or you're not. Lily Grace, either you're going to figure it out or you're going to put the bike away. But we think it's so cruel. But guess what that little girl learned how to do? All right? Faith has to be strengthened. It has to be built so that means every situation that you have going on in your world right now, you have a fresh new category to believe it is for the glory of God. And God is trying to build strength in me. He's building faith in me. This has nothing to do with whether I listened to the right podcast or whether I was doing the right things. God has got to build. 
and he's done it in Mary and Martha. Verse 41, he says, so they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you would always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here. Why, y'all? Why'd he do it? So that they would believe. I know you're done. Every situation in this word, every situation in your life, it's like carrots, like little crumbs trying to lead you to believe in Jesus. Not just to believe in the historicity of a literal resurrection, not to believe that resurrection is actually possible. It doesn't matter unless you actually believe in the one who resurrected. Who cares? Do you actually believe in him? Praising you can come up. There was a, um, I told you I've been locked in to the Russian war. And there was a family in Ukraine who uh, they had family members both in Ukraine and in Russia. And a mom had been writing to her son who was in Russia, like, hey, man, these kind of things are going on. These kind of things are going on. Hey, you need to open your eyes. You need to see. You need to pay attention to what's going on. Hey, man, this is really happening. Then as things started to escalate and they were in the middle of it, they were in the most heated moments. And they were fleeing from their country. And this lady was sleeping in cars and, you know, you know, ducking bombs and, you know, trying to hide from, you know, people who would do her harm. She wrote back to her son all these atrocities that happened. Now, this is the, the boy's own mother. Son, this is what happened to me. 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 And she said one question. She said, do you believe now? The text came back. Two letters. No. you're under the sound of my voice today first and you don't know Jesus, I believe you have enough sufficient historical evidence. Go find his bones. Josephus, all his contemporaries, go, what happened to the miracle worker? Where did they lay him? And where is he now? He ain't there, y'all. I believe that's sufficient evidence and more. I just beg you, if there's an inkling of you that actually believes that he is the resurrection, I beg you to drop your anchor this morning and believe in him. And for y'all believers today, join with me. And let Mary and Martha serve as this beautiful picture and example that the resurrection doesn't want to just be true on the last day. But he wants to do something in us and with us now. Do you believe? 